You're listening to Denver Orbit. Episode 35. A little of everything. Well, hi. Welcome, one and all, to Denver... One and all. Welcome, one and all, to Denver Orbit. Yep, I wrote that down. Well, I'm going to keep going with it. I'm keeping going. I'm just going to plow ahead here. Your audio magazine featuring voices, stories, and music from Colorado's creative community. I'm your host and guide, Josh Madison. What? Who wrote this? Anyway, when I started this little program a little while ago, I didn't know what kind of things I would get. Uh, Would I make more produced radio-style pieces, or maybe there'd be more fiction or comedy or memoir... Turns out the answer is yes to all of that. So today, we bring you a really good grab bag of all kinds of different things that are happening in our uh, creative community. Before we start, though, uh, there's a few things you can do to help support the show. Start growing a bunch of bonsai trees and then take years to shape those trees so that they may one day spell out, listen to Denver Orbit. Now I know that's what all the podcasts ask you to do, but it's really the most effective method. It's much more effective than, say, going to iTunes and rating and reviewing the show or telling your friends about the show if you enjoy it. Um, So make those bonsai trees, get to it, and then, uh, you know, get back to me when you've got a finished product. Also, if you're doing a thing, some kind of creative thing in some way, maybe it's a music or a memoir or you're a fiction writer or some kind of poet, maybe you've got just a really cool PowerPoint presentation Maybe you've got a kind of a neat story you'd like to share, or hell, even just an idea for a segment. Let me know. You can write denverorbit at gmail.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or even Instagram. Just search for Denver Orbit in those places, or you can follow the links in the show notes, baby. I've said that again. I said I wasn't going to do it. I don't know. I did it. Now, let's get into this thing. Like I said, we've got a bit of everything today. We've got some science from Dr. Graham Lau. We've got a short memoir from Jenny Linellis and a story about teenage drugs from a newcomer to this show, Jack Orleans. So let's start with our resident science guy, Graham Lau. One of the things I love about having Graham on is his ability to take huge conceptual ideas and make them easy and fun to understand. And today is no different. Graham stopped by to talk to us about nothing less than the origin of all matter in the universe. And there's no less than three explosions, each smaller than the one before it. So. Without any further ado, here's Graham. Twenty nineteen marks the one hundred and fiftieth anniversary of the periodic table. This tool that scientists have used to understand chemistry, uh, to understand the elements. And I thought that that's a really cool time then to think about the elements that are inside of us and where they come from. Many of us have now heard this beautiful phrase that you are star stuff. You are the material of stellar processes occurring in the universe. But there's more to it than just that, really. It's not just stars. And so we can actually look at the full history of our universe and where our elements come from to give us a better sense of, of not just who we are, but what we are. 
So to start, we really, we have to go back to the very beginning of everything. We have to step back 13.8 billion years to the Big Bang. In those very first hot flashes of the Big Bang, as it was just very first getting started, the temperatures were so amazingly high that protons and neutrons, the, the, these basic things inside of the nucleus of an atom, couldn't even exist. There was too much energy in the very early universe. But within about a microsecond after the Big Bang happened, the universe had cooled just enough for protons and neutrons to finally form. And it's from roughly that microsecond up until about three minutes that almost all of the atoms in our universe were created. All of the hydrogen and most of the helium in our universe and even some of the lithium came from those first three minutes after this amazing event that even our words, our language can't really fully describe. But then long after the Big Bang happened, stars started forming. And all of this hydrogen and helium and lithium started getting bound together in these large stellar spheres. And inside of stars, that's where a lot of the magic happens. That's where hydrogen can start fusing together and making helium. Helium and more hydrogen can mix together and make things like carbon and nitrogen and oxygen and even things like silicon and, and sulfur and calcium can be built up inside of stars of all kinds of sizes. The smaller stars make lighter elements. The bigger stars make really big elements. The whole way up to things as heavy as iron. But when we get to iron, something really weird happens inside of stars where the stars themselves don't actually have enough energy. There's not enough temperature and pressure inside of the star to make anything bigger than iron. And so the insides of these very large stars are just basically big cores of iron metal with other things that are lighter out around it. It really takes the next big process in the universe to happen to start making heavier elements. That's where the stellar explosions known as supernovae come into play. Supernovae happen at the end of these stars' lives when the pressure builds up, the star starts to decay and shrink a little bit and then it puffs up and blows out its outer shells in a giant explosive process. And in that process, neutrons can get shoved hard into the nuclei, nuclei of atoms. And when that's happening, they can make all of these larger elements that we know of on the periodic table. Things like europium and uranium, um, titanium. However, we're now learning even more about stellar processes thanks to our recent detections of gravitational waves. You might have heard recently of LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, which we've used to now start detecting gravitational waves moving through our universe. Things that Einstein predicted based on relativity, but that he thought we could never measure because the measurements would be so difficult. 
we are now at a point where we have the technology to listen to the waves of gravity bouncing across the universe. And it's allowing us to hear something really cool, which is the merger of neutron stars. These dense stars composed primarily of, nit of neutrons are bouncing into each other. And when that happens, there's so much energy released, they slough off these giant waves of material that then go out into the cosmos. And when that happens, they can release a lot of a lot of energy and build those larger elements out of those neutrons. Recently, it was estimated that one of these waves being released from a known neutron star merger could have made as much as 10 times the weight of Earth in gold alone. That's a lot of gold. So maybe a lot of our uranium, a lot of our rare Earth elements in our smartphones and our computers and our GPS units in our cars, maybe a lot of that is coming from neutron stars smashing into each other. And maybe gold that you might be wearing in a necklace or a ring, uh, gold that we use as our standard for our currency on this planet uh, with our species, has come from neutron stars bouncing together and causing these giant mergers where they release all of this energy. And that's where a lot of the elements inside of us come from. But there's still some other processes that occur as well that a lot of people aren't aware of. So for instance, not all of the atoms in your body came from the Big Bang, from stars, from supernovae, or from neutron mergers. Some of the elements inside of your body are much, much, much younger and have actually come from processes occurring right here on our planet. You might have heard of cosmic rays these really high energetic energy particles that every now and then strike our atmosphere. Well, those cosmic rays, they can hit atoms in our atmosphere and cause them to change into different atoms. For instance, the, the cosmic rays that hit nitrogen-14 in our atmosphere can make carbon-14, the same carbon-14 that we use for radio dating to figure out the ages of dead material from living things on Earth that are very young. Things like dead trees and old wood. Uh, when we're looking at old archaeological sites and we find some wooden material, we can use carbon-14 formed through these cosmic rays to understand the ages of these things on our planet. But that's not the only place we get some extra carbon from. Starting in around 1945 and really hitting its peak in 1963... Five, four, three... Two, one. We humans were detonating nuclear weapons above ground in these nuclear bomb tests. And in that process, we created a lot of what we call bomb carbon. More carbon-14 produced through these nuclear explosions. And we actually now, as scientists, to do radiocarbon dating, for things that are younger than, say, 1945, we actually have to now account for this extra amount of carbon created by nuclear weapons. And right now inside of your body, some of you is actually created from nuclear weapons testing. However, when we think about it, we have nuclear weapons testing, we have cosmic rays striking our atmosphere, we have the Big Bang, we have neutron stars banging together and supernovae, and all of those stars out there, these giant reaction machines,
clumping together all these different elements that then came together to create us. It's all rather remarkable. Dr. Graham Lau is an astrobiologist and a communicator of science. He's pursued in education in biology, chemistry, astrophysics, and geology, and has been lucky enough to travel to some of the most awesome places in the name of science. Dr. Lau currently serves as the Director of Communications and Marketing for Blue Marble Space, a nonprofit focused on developing international collaboration in sustainable living, earth system science, and space exploration. You can find Dr. Lau on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Cosmobiologist, and at his website, cosmobiata.com. You'll find all of that in the show notes, my friends. Up next is a friend of the show, Jenny Lynn Ellis. This is a short story of hers called Nothing Bad Happens. Martha and I are asleep in our room with yellow curtains the night that Mama wakes us up to meet her new friends. Dreams may be happening when I start to hear talking and music, but I don't always know the difference between dreams and daytime. I know how old I am and can show you on my fingers. This many. Four. I don't know what the 60s are or that they just ended. And I don't know where my daddy is tonight. I am the baby of the family. My other big sisters are sleeping in their own rooms downstairs, but I share with Martha. She is five. Sometimes she will sing to me at night, and I will feel myself float up, up, up in the air with her pretty voice. Before bedtime, if I stand on my tippy toes, I can look out my window and down into the shadowy backyard. When I am twice as old as now, when I know what the 1970s are and that I am in them, I will jump out of that window to show that I am big and that I won't break my leg. On that day, I will perch on the narrow window sash and my mind will freeze, stuck like the tip of a knife in bone. Martha and the bigger neighborhood kids will have gotten bored looking up and watching me be scared. They will be gone when I finally bend my shaking knees and stop looking down at the grass. So no one will see me when I push off and land with my thighs shoved into my chest. No one but me will hear my teeth clack together as I hit the ground. Everything will hurt when I land, but I won't break my leg. And with no audience, I will practice not letting fear stop me. 
My sweaty hands will grip the window frame just long enough to prepare for landing by bending my body into the leathery shape of a bird's feet. I will leap and land, then walk through the backyard and into the house through the dining room's shining glass doors. I will saunter through the kitchen, wishing, as always, to be seen. I will want Mama to notice what I have done and to say, Jenny Lynn, I thought you were in your room. How did you get here? But that day, the kitchen will be empty. Tonight, when Mama comes to wake us up, I'm still little. She opens the door, sending a crooked line of light across the floor. I roll onto my side, away from the brightness. Voices I don't know creep in from the hall. I feel my bed tilt as Mama sits down beside me and touches my shoulder. My nose wrinkles at the smell of grown-up drinks and smoke on her skin. Jenny Lynn, wake up. Come and meet my friends. I push my eyes halfway open and see her hair loose around her face. My eyelids fall closed again. I hear Mama's crooked, late-night way of walking as she goes over to Martha's bed. Wake up and come see my friends. My beautiful girls. Come on, get up for Mama. Her voice is sticky, like pink candy. She pulls us to our feet, wrapping a warm arm around each of us. We lean into her sides and stagger together down the hallway. Two men sit on our long, gold-colored couch. They look fuzzy in their blue jeans and straight brown hair. There wasn't a dinner party, so I don't know why there are ashtrays and drinks and strangers. Martha and I stand next to each other in our nightgowns, blinking at the bright lamps Mama has turned on. Light from the kitchen ceiling bends over our heads to the top of the dark basement stairs. See, these are my little girls. We start to smile at Mama's new friends. I know I am supposed to be cute and sweet. Aw, Ragna, you didn't need to get them out of bed, one of the men says. His smile to us is real. The other man says, look how sleepy they are. What cutie pies. He looks from us back to Mama, who tilts her head and grins. Say hi to my friends. We obey her and give a little wave. She tells us to go back to bed. Those two are my babies, we hear her say as she turns back to the party that came out of nowhere. But you know I have seven children. The words of the men melt away as we close our bedroom door. Martha and I go back to our beds and our dreams. I don't remember anything about the next day, but my mornings were joyful. I woke up happy, and I woke up knowing I was loved. Only decades later did I paint that night in dark colors. I write the story and recoil at my old certainty that my mother had been so horribly wrong. When nothing bad happened, I loved her and I loved that she was proud of us. I jumped at the chances she gave me to be seen.
Jenny Linellis lives and writes in Denver and in Fairplay. She takes classes at the Lighthouse Writers Workshop and posts her writing at themoreiwrite.net. Finally, we've got a new, to us anyway, addition to our little program, Jack Orleans. I met Jack while I was working on an audiobook project for Suspect Press, and I'll link to that in the show notes, by the way. Anyway, Jack was gracious enough to help us with the edits to that project, and it turned out he's a writer as well. So, here's a story from him. And just an FYI, this story's got kids getting high, so you know you've had a fair warning. When I was 11, I waited for the school bell to go with Sean to this kid's house to get stoned. I don't remember the kid's name, but the only impression he made on me was his face. It was scabbed over, crusted with dried blood across the entirety of his chin. Me, unaware of any tact, asked him why. He had told me that there once used to be a pimple there, and he kept picking at it. At once, I knew he wasn't too bright. Or maybe he was a genius. After all, there wasn't a pimple there anymore, but the circumference of the scab seemed a bit overkill for what probably amounted for a small bead of pus to begin with. I wasn't there to look at his titanic scab. In fact, I wasn't even there for him. I was there for a seemingly unlimited store of green-hued carnal pleasure. That feeling that brought me there, to his house, was my primordial fascination with naughtiness. Anything that made my adrenaline peak was mine for the taking. Marijuana was just a means to that end. I didn't even like being stoned that much at that age. I just loved the idea of being a stoned 11-year-old. It was the novelty of it that interested me, as opposed to the tool of that novelty. If I were any year above that, I probably wouldn't even have tried it. After it was legalized a year later, I never touched the stuff again until the eve of my 18th birthday, when a coworker had been goading me. There were several sheriffs in the dining room, and the itch to be dumb and brazen returned. I craved the inside-inside joke of a stone cook serving a poor excuse for Mexican food to several members of the law enforcement profession. If there were lawyers, I'd probably have pretended to slip and fall instead of smoking the pot, desperate to land refried beans on their Brooks brothers. In fact, I'd have probably made them smoke the pot if they weren't stuffy enough to refuse. They probably do anyway. But I wanted to get stoned at 11 so I could be 11 and stoned. So Sean and I walked across a grassy ditch that had a small dirt path made of wear to the neighborhood across from school. The kid welcomed us inside, but demanded that we take our shoes off. His parents were Chinese, and he'd be damned if we were all about to get geeked out of our minds without first having taken our shoes off before entering his house. He commanded it as if his parents were primitive gods and we were the primitives, offering goods of leather and polyester on a door jam altar. If he hadn't stopped me first to take my shoes off, I'd have walked right past him on the way to his stash that I'd already taken mental ownership of. His house was more Chinese than he was, redwood floor and porcelain vases. For a second, it heightened the thrill. It was the closest thing to an opium den in a sea of the particularly disgusting rendition of waspy suburbia that the 2010s could muster. I was going up to his bedroom, lured by blue horses glazed in fine bone china that his mom bought in clearance from TJ Maxx, when the reality hit that it was all going down right now. I shook a little bit on the inside but maintained a poker face. On entering his room, the kid proudly brandished a pipe. Pen cap and casing held haphazardly at a right angle by tinfoil. 
He looked so proud of it, so I tried to conceal my suspicion behind beaming joy as well. I'd heard good things about marijuana, everybody does, but the burning plastic didn't have the same tasty appeal, so I was a bit wary. Then, he pulled out the pot in a plastic crystal-looking dome that once held imported hazelnut truffles, but was now brimming with the fern good stuff. Carefully, he loaded the big pen bowl of his big pen pipe, pulled out a big lighter from his pocket, and paused, looking at both of us. You have to stay here till it's all over, he said, but inflected the last word so the command sounded more like a question. I was confused, and I wore it well enough for him to explain. I don't want anyone finding you after this. No cops, nothing, nobody. This shit is powerful, he said. I agreed, and because we were all between 11 and 13, we decided who'd take the first hit by playing rock, paper, scissors. There wasn't any other way. On rock, the kid dropped the pipe and had to sweep all the weed into a nice little line, scooping it back in the bowl with an index card along with dust and tiny strands of hair. In only a moment, the privilege of hitting the pipe first became a guessing game of who'd take one for the team. I took one for the team, being unintimidated by flecks of dandruff and bedlamed. They passed around, and I grew mesmerized by the trading routine of the pipe that Sean and the kid invented with each other to avoid the now misshapen, melty-hot bowl. They forgot to pass to me. I forgot to ask. They juggled it between each other, and with each changing of hands, my throat became drier and drier, as if something both euphoric and sinister at the same time was boiling in my throat. There are helicopters in my head, I said. They both looked at me with the scarlet slits that had once been their eyes and pointed up. I was right below the ceiling fan, which was on. Oh, I said to the ceiling fan as both of them squealed, laughing without trying to cough. The kid fetched Girl Scout trefoils from the downstairs kitchen which Sean had dogged for himself, scarfing down one after another. The kid tried to get them out of his hands so that he could have some, but there were only three left and he ultimately resigned them back over to Sean. The sun scorched the room despite the ceiling fan being full blast, so we decided to go to the treehouse. At least there was a breeze in there. At the treehouse, we all sat there sweltering but not sweating, arguing over who was going to play music. The music is important, the kid said. Cements the whole thing. I looked at him a bit funny because the hand motion he used for cement looked more like he was squeezing an invisible lemon and hesitantly grinding it into the wood floor beneath us. And that word, cement, it sounded way too special to describe what was going on. Three slumped tweens in a treehouse doesn't call for cement to describe them. It wasn't exactly a meeting of the minds. In fact, that descriptor was second to organic in how pretentious adjectives could get. Still, nobody was playing music, so I whipped out my phone and went straight to YouTube on the slow browser that had been pre-installed. I didn't have a data plan, but this occasion was too special for a data plan. If there's an extra charge at the end of the month, so be it. Living starts now. I went straight to Black Sabbath's Paranoid, which was a song Sean could get behind, but the kid was vehemently against it. He grabbed my phone and put his finger over the speaker while scrolling through his music. He would set my phone down, but pick it back up again when the song he forgot to pause would pipe up again at full volume without his finger plugging the speaker. He kept forgetting to pause it. His forgetfulness apparently annoyed him so much that he tossed my phone out one of the windows. It was safe because of the grass beneath us, but it was still a severe breach of principle. 
Sean tried to defend me and Black Sabbath by proxy, but we independently came to the conclusion that any dissent would mean the end of our pot. So we kept our mouth shut as the kid went to fetch another pen-lid bowl for the pen-casing pipe and a bit more of sticky bud from inside the house. Sean and I stared at each other, having nothing else to do. We didn't know we were staring at each other until the kid asked what we were up to when he came back to find our eyes locked. On his return, he didn't just bring more pot. He brought the entire faux crystal jar of it. In his other hand was a near-full small bottle of baiju, that Chinese liquor that's so rough it almost feels oily when swished around. I assumed the oily sensation was the clear liquid dissolving the edges of my skin. I was still very high, but Sean was more high. The liquor didn't do anything but turn Sean and I both high and nauseous. The kid tinkered with his phone to play the music he'd been meaning to, but eventually stopped trying after several clumsy attempts and no luck. We all pretended that the awkward silence was enough to fill the space that the proposed better than Black Sabbath music would have. The kid digged around his pocket and also pulled out a pack of his dad's fancy cigarettes from Hong Kong. They were supposed to have medical benefits, but the purported benefits were rebuffed by the health warning that showed some type of indiscernible rot on an unidentified part of the body. That's the red flag of a developing country anyhow. The lower GDP drops, the healthier unhealthy things seem to become. He gave one to Sean, who was unreasonably timid at the blinding white stick. He refused to give me one. I was 11, and apparently that was marijuana age, but hardly tobacco age. Sean was 13, so that was a good enough age for the kid, who was 12. Sean didn't want to look like chicken shit, so he lit it. I looked over at him, and the unholy trinity of sludgy baiju, plastic-infused pot, and medical cigarettes turned his face green. He stood up with a slight twirl, but centered himself enough to throw up right in the middle of the treehouse, smothering the pipe, bottle, and pack of cigarettes in kime. The kid hurried us out of the treehouse while he used his shirt to buffer his hand against picking up the shame-soaked paraphernalia. We went back to the main house where Sean continued to spill himself in the upstairs bathroom. He threw up so much that it was almost frightening, so I nursed Bertie sips of baiju to quell my anxiety without pushing myself over to joining him on the porcelain throne. I decided that I needed to get out, so I left Sean to deal with the kid. I left the house and walked home, surprisingly with more balance than I thought I'd have. I went to my room, turned on the ceiling fan, and basked in its sobriety-inducing frigidity. I passed out and woke up slightly hungover, but that soon faded. The next day was Monday, and I gave Sean a knowing look as he passed by me in the halls. He gave me a dirty look, but I didn't mind. I could understand his scorn at me leaving him alone to deal with a kid, much less himself. Yet I also felt like a scapegoat for his weak boundaries. Our school was 30 years behind, that means we got taught the normal way, with carryovers and tallies, and we played dodgeball still. But that also meant the school was haunted with the ghosts of Dara and Nancy Reagan. I moseyed my way to the next class, health. The past Friday was all about how to not fuck. It worked. Over the weekend, I hadn't fucked. But really, that curriculum depicted women as seductresses that ruin your life with tits, ass, herpes, and child support to scare the boys and how men are suave letharios filled with infection and infidelity beneath a California tan that would render the girls unable to be the person that the boys would be scared of to scare the girls. The divide and conquer strategy got the counting quite up there in the teen pregnancy and disease stats, guaranteeing funding to teach the same thing next year because it didn't work this year. People never learn. 
They guaranteed that funding for a decade, unlike Denver that actually had to teach about protection. Their curriculum got poorer as a result. The one before that was how to not eat food that had been laying out. That lesson was a bit more challenging to someone born into an immigrant family. We rarely used a fridge for things that were cooked that evening to save energy on snowy nights, but on the Monday after what seemed to be an acid test to three people not yet tall enough to paint the school bus different colors, we were learning a new unit, the perils of drug and drink. I pretended that the lesson was version to me. Reaching into my pocket to grab a pencil, my heart dropped a few floors. I had forgotten that I would taken a little weed as a souvenir. I felt it more to make sure that it was in fact what I thought it was, and then stopped feeling it in a bit to keep it from leaking out of the loosely tied bag. But I was 11, so the teacher thought I just didn't have a pencil. She moved closer as my heart raced faster and plopped a Dixon on my desk. Don't you ever come to class unprepared again, understand? I nodded. She went back to her desk and started to teach. Jack Orlings is a Denver writer whose work has been featured in Birdie Magazine, SUNY Hopewell's Literary Journal, The Finger, and Suspect Press. He has also published a photo essay in Stained Magazine. Jack can't seem to fall asleep. He takes the bus late to have coffee. While taking the bus, he's happy until someone fucks up on the bus. After, he's happy, but with caveats. He knows that he'd be awake regardless of having had coffee. He prefers to be awake and alert over awake and tired. He just doesn't know what he wants. But it better involve lots of undeserved perks or sky miles. This story also appears in Litro Magazine. We'll have links to that. We'll have links to Birdie, Suspect Press, and Stained in the show notes. And that's it. This is the end of the show. You've come to the stopping point. There's no more show today. There will be more in the future. But until then, I have been Josh Madison. What does that even mean, anyway? I have been. Who else would I be? I better not think about that too much. I am Josh Madison. I'm the producer, the editor, you know, whatever of this little show. I will see you again in a couple of weeks.